Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On both sides now, no matter what your political perspective is in the United States, we seek a conspiracy because we believe it is probably more true than the truth we're being told by the White House. Trump supporters and the country writ large have been shown repeatedly time and again that what they are doing is doing Russia's work for them, and yet they keep doing it. And there are many points that they could have gotten off this ride and changed their tone or at least acknowledge that this is what they're doing, but they don't and they won't. And so I think at this point, it's impossible to say anyone is an unwitting actor and they are complicit in in using malign foreign narratives, targeting their own country against their own country now. It has become such a particularly gruesome form of normalizing violence and dehumanizing political opponents in the United States that the direction that it is moving in is extremely worrying and it is a hardcore radical extremist ideology that is moving people toward the belief that domestic terror attacks and violence are necessary to achieve political goals. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments that you just heard were made by Molly McHugh, who is a writer and expert on information warfare with a particular focus on Russian operations. Molly is the CEO of Fianna Strategies, a consulting firm that advises governments, political parties and NGOs on foreign policy and strategic communications. And there is barely any better credential in that space than having advised Mikhail Saakashvili, the former president of Georgia, which is one of the countries that Russia has invaded in the post-Soviet era. Today, we will be talking to Molly about how we interpret the information deluge around the Trump presidency as we lead into the 2020 elections. This discussion actually took place in two parts, as not long after we recorded the first session, President Trump tested positive for COVID-19. Of course he did, and the landscape shifted once again. And we couldn't have released this pod without addressing that issue, so you will hear us do that in the second half of this episode. Given that Molly and I are on opposite sides of the world, this pod was recorded remotely, and much of it at about 6am in the morning for me, which means that I hosted this episode from the Pillow Fort at the NatSec Pod compound, rather than in the Policy Forum studios, which also explains the birds you can hear chirping in the background. Finally, for those who follow us on our at NatSecPod Twitter account, I did promise that Rick Wilson would be joining us for this episode, but he had to send his apologies, given that when we recorded, everything was just moving so fast in Washington uh, that he had to postpone that element of this episode. We will hopefully be hearing from him in the future, but right now, 
Let's Talk Information Warfare, the election edition with Molly McHugh. G'day, Molly. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you wrote an article in 2018 for Wired called Brett Kavanaugh and the Information Terrorists Trying to Reshape America. This was a pretty seminal article for me as it described not only the the pent-up dissatisfaction of people, mostly men, uh, who did not like the way that their world was changing, but also how their online behaviour was harnessed by political forces into a political tool to support Donald Trump's candidacy. You've also written a lot about Russian disinformation campaigns that tied in with some of the folk in the Trump camp, such as Roger Stone. And much has already been said about the bot farm sock puppets and uh, efforts by the Russian Internet Research Agency to turn America in on itself and cause doubt for the reliability of democracy and even doubt in truth itself. But that was 2016. A lot, maybe not enough, has been done to inoculate populations against these kinds of attacks. Social media platforms have worked somewhat harder to uh, block the bots and identify inauthentic posters, uh, and awareness campaigns have been launched to educate populations as to what disinformation looks like. So what I'd like to know now is, is there still a campaign of interference coming from Russia towards or aiming at the 2020 elections? And if so, has it evolved from the models that we saw in 2016? Are we seeing new actors on the scene copying the tactics used by Russia and those around Donald Trump previously? What does the disinformation landscape look like this time around? So thanks for that question. I think it's a really good question, kind of looking at these differences between 2016 and 2020. In 2016, there was very much this sense that um, what we now have more firmly identified as Russian disinformation campaigns running in the U.S. election cycle were very much running parallel to alt-right, far-right, pro-Trump information campaigns that were also fairly manipulative and coercive. Um, But there was really that sort of connectivity between them was still in doubt. It certainly seemed like They were connected by data and narrative and message. Um, But I think as we've gotten further from 2016, those have merged so fully into the same system uh, of information and the same ecosystem of information um, that it's just really hard to see them as, uh, as separate entities anymore. So I think what's so different in 2020 is the most important aspects of Russian disinformation campaigns Um, are now coming from American actors directly without pass-throughs or proxies or false accounts or false identities laundering them necessarily. It's now kind of American networks and American actors and American proxies that are doing it direct, in some cases, American administration officials um, that are doing it directly. And this is, in terms of the big narratives and the big information things, and this is absolutely bonkers. Um, So for me, that's the, the most substantial difference between 2016 and 2020. So, these political actors that you're talking about, are these people doing this wittingly, or do these people actually truly believe that, you know, Antifa is about to come and burn your suburb down, or Hillary Clinton's about to eat your kids? Is it a cynical tactic to steal the election, or are these truly misguided people that actually believe in what they're saying? So it is somewhat a unique situation (laughs) where there's this overlap in data and message and there's sort of the question of, well, do they understand? 
And I think in 2016, it was possible to still give this benefit of the doubt. Oh, they don't know. It's new. They don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to help Trump win, whatever. But in the intervening years, I think uh, Trump supporters and the country writ large have been shown repeatedly time and again that what they are doing is doing Russia's work for them, and yet they keep doing it. And there are many points that they could have gotten off this ride and changed their tone or at least acknowledge that this is what they're doing, but they don't and they won't. And so I think at this point, it's impossible to say anyone is an unwitting actor and they are complicit in, in using malign foreign narratives, targeting their own country against their own country now um, without even acknowledging that. And I think there are points um, you know, where you could maybe step back and say, look, we know that this is Russian disinformation or a targeted information campaign coming from Russian intelligence, and it aims to do X, Y, Z. However, we think there are real questions about this issue, but they don't even say that. So I think that complicity is now um, fairly secure, if that makes sense. So conspiracy theories and foreign interference in political processes and so on are not new. Uh, The United States itself is not a stranger to information warfare. However, I struggle to think of a time in modern history where disinformation and conspiracy theories were such a central element of political discourse or when they've literally propelled people to take to the streets with the modern versions of pitchforks and fiery torches. Is America's experience from 2016 up until today, is it unique or has this all happened before and we're just watching history rhyme? So I think, you know, it's unique in time, in technology and in importance of what's happening. Um, Obviously, foreign interference, quote unquote, however you want to define that is, is not a new thing. It has happened before. Everyone is always trying to influence everybody else's systems. But for what purpose is always uh, sort of an important identifying factor. But I think now um, the the information tools that are available, the way that social media works, the way that algorithms are now feeding into these cycles um, just change the nature of the speed uh, at, at which you can do these things. And I think it's easy to forget that uh, you know, while we're looking at this horrific pitched battle between political sides in the United States and the fights about really stupid but dying things sometimes online, but that are just becoming like larger and larger, I think it's easy to forget that while America is spiraling in on itself in these closed information loops, the world around us is changing. I mean, this is for Americans, not for the rest of you so much. You know, the world around us is changing. And the rules are increasingly being set by our adversaries who are increasingly getting the chance that they want to, in in the view of China and Russia, kind of erase this strange historical anomaly of democracy and democratic governance, this idea of rule by the people, and build a system uh, where the rule of the few becomes sort of the normal accepted model again. And I think technology is sort of the key... Uh, differentiating factor between what happened in the past and what is happening now. And I just think that that's, it's such a unique thing that, that we need to pay more attention to uh, because it is really changing how quickly this works and that we don't really see it happening in the same ways. So are, are there any actual differences 
between disinformation campaigns and just straight up conspiracy theories like QAnon. And this goes a little bit to your question, how it just seems to be turning into one big maelstrom of craziness in itself. Is there a difference in way in the way these two streams of information are influencing politics in the US? So yes, in the sense that you know disinformation is a, is itself sort of one piece of information or uh, a piece of information contributing to a bigger narrative. I think the difference is you know a conspiracy. Uh, is more about this architecture. It's the architecture of these pieces of information and the different narratives that sort of build a structure and identify where we, the target of the conspiracy, sits within that structure. Um, And that's why they are so powerful to people in this time of sort of extreme unraveling of systems and disruption and upheaval. Um, whereas before we would look to things like religion or community or government or national identity or, you know, other things that sort of provide these answers of, I don't really understand these questions, but I know that this is where I fit in them. Conspiracies are now taking the place of that because people feel like they have nowhere else to look. So it's sort of this architecture um, that puts information, it, it sort of answers all these questions that we otherwise don't know how to make sense of and says, this is where we sit in the middle of this structure. Um, and I think that's why they've gained such traction, um, particularly in the way that the internet kind of makes digging for truth uh, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at times of, of falling down rabbit holes. Um, but I really do think it's, it's sort of a different thing. And I think in the American context in particular, conspiracies have become uh, a really powerful psychological tool for um, people seeking a salve to this feeling that they don't understand what's going on anymore um, and they and they need answers. So in the hours leading up to us recording this podcast today, DNI Ratcliffe, that's the Director of National Intelligence, the guy who's in charge of all of US intelligence outside of uh, the FBI, DNI Ratcliffe declassified a Russian intelligence assessment that had claims about the Clinton campaign allegedly trying to frame the Trump campaign and the Russians for hacking the Democratic National Congress. This is a claim that had been previously rejected by the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is a bipartisan committee, as Russian disinformation. Why do you think that the DNI has released this information in the way that he has and what plausible impact could information regarding a previous election have on the coming election? Yeah, you know, Ratcliffe is uh, a cartoon who's completely unqualified for this job, and he only managed to get the job and be confirmed in the job after the president appointed uh, a, a total partisan hack as the acting DNI, sort of in between when he first tried to nominate Ratcliffe and now when he has nominated Ratcliffe again. Um, because only by having this extremely dangerous partisan actor in the job did it seem normal to allow Ratcliffe to have this job. Um, He's there because he's a fervent supporter of the president, and he auditioned for the job uh, while sitting in Congress using his position on committees to spread conspiracies and disinformation, including Russian information, during hearings. Um, So I think he's now openly abusing his position to try to save the president using these false Russian narratives, and this is just the sad state of what 2020 republicanism and trumpism is um that the russians don't need to launder their information through WikiLeaks anymore the trump administration is just willing to do it for them directly and it's total madness and i'm not going to try to normalize it um but that's what's happening i think 
this is uh, Ratcliffe's attempt to, you know, gain favor with the president by throwing out yet another counter narrative or bit of data that the president could potentially use to take a swipe at Biden during the campaign or during the debate last night. Um, but, you know, it's just, again, like, why are we still talking about Clinton? Why are we still talking about 2020 or 2016? Um, it's because they're so afraid anyone will point out yet again that the Russian campaign happened, that it helped Donald Trump win, that the Russians are still trying to help Donald Trump win. Um, and he really has nothing to say about it because he's done nothing about it in four years. So they just keep pointing to the, no, no, the real collusion was Clinton. And this is just another piece of that. And the the information that, that was in this sort of not real intelligence assessment was essentially, I mean, even what it said was, hey, we got this information, we don't think this is anything other than a diversion attempt, essentially. Um, and yet you still have the DNI putting it out as, as if it's something significant, because it feeds these right-wing narratives in the US that no one will read, but it sort of, you know, activates their confirmation bias of, oh, yes, it was actually just Clinton. So it's just a silly tactic. But it's proof, again, that that this president has done more to subvert our institutions than anyone ever in this office before. If if we're saying that the director of national intelligence is acting in a political way, can we say then that the Trump uh, the Trump presidency has literally co opted America's intelligence community? Holistically, no, but in specific instances, like positions like DNI, which are appointed by the president and really aren't in of the, in and of themselves sort of collection or analysis, but they kind of perform these interagency functions and filter things for the White House. Um, yes. And uh, I think you've seen increasing arguments um, from former intelligence officials and former national security officials in the U.S. who think that both the Department of Homeland Security and um, the Director of National Intelligence, both of things, uh, both things sort of created after 9-11 and, and sort of how do we better synthesize our capabilities and information to prevent further uh, or, or future crises and further attacks in the United States. A lot of people are now arguing these things are clearly never going to be what they need to be. We should get rid of them and build new structures or just not have them at all. Uh, and I think that will probably gain some momentum. I think Ratcliffe is sort of the final proof that this is a position that nobody necessarily needs and has now been completely corrupted. I think in general, America's intelligence agencies are doing their work, are doing their job, are working with our allies, especially in the Five Eyes community to uh, stay on top of actual threats to the country and actual threats to our allies and partners and um, do the same analysis and assessment work that they always would have been doing. Um, all of that work is happening. All of the professionals are still engaged in their work. It is just that on top of this, there is this extremely political layer currently that is filtering and coercing that intelligence into shapes that look like what the President of the United States wants to see. I, I think the pushback to that um, has gotten softer, especially from the Republican side, because no one wants to upset the president. Um, but the real work is still there. And certainly the people that I know and the contacts that I have uh, understand what the real threats are and um, the real challenges that we actually face. It's just a matter of having leadership and having a White House that actually wants to look at those instead of just create imaginary threats that they'd rather fight. 
Yeah, I must admit it was it was really quite depressing to see what DNI Radcliffe did. Um, General Jim Clapper is actually a friend of the National Security College uh-huh. and has been a previous guest here on the podcast. And I remember reading the last page of his book where he said that uh, America has been through tough times before and it has come out the other side better for it. And he he can only believe that it's going to happen again this time that America will make its way through this uh, this dark period and come out stronger, um, although I wonder if the position that he did a lot of credit to as the first DNI will survive. Now, I'd like to go to a question from uh, my podcast co-host, Catherine Manstead, and this ties back into one of the questions that we were discussing before about the domestic sources of of disinformation and she asks should we intellectually differentiate between domestic and foreign source disinformation is one inherently worse than the other is there merit in treating them separately um so it's it's a really good question and i think this is always the challenging one and where uh you know kind of the popular rhetoric of it's russian bots and trolls is like a really big diversion from the actual problem um i i think there is a necessity, particularly in the authorities of our agencies, to monitor and map uh, what these networks are and how they're spreading information and how they're coordinating. There's obviously a very big divide in most of our countries between domestic uh, authorities and foreign authorities in terms of monitoring um, threats and, and things like that. Um, especially in the information domain. Um, so there is a value in separating these things, but in terms of the public-facing aspect, does it matter to uh, Americans or Australians if this is a, a domestic campaign or a foreign one? Um, I think when the goals of a, an information campaign, whatever it might be, are advancing the objectives of an adversarial power, it is what it is. And uh, I think that it's so much more valuable to um, the citizens of our countries to explain um, the goals of these campaigns, what the narratives are, what they aim to achieve, um, so that every little bit of disinformation doesn't have to be debunked or fact-checked or you know, uh, sort of made explicitly true or not true or false or not false. Um, but that the overall purpose of kind of the coercion of this narrative um, is understood so people can do those things on their own. And um, I, I think the the foreign versus domestic <laughs> argument is, is important in the sense that motivation is such an important thing for how we look at why people are doing what they're doing uh, and what it means and, and if it's a threat or if it's just politics, right? But I think it's these things become so integrated and support comes in such strange ways sometimes that it's very hard to sort of pry them apart anymore. Yeah, and from an observer's point of view, it's really difficult to not feel that the whole disinformation conspiracy dynamic is a conservative and possibly even evangelical Christian or Republican phenomenon. Is that an accurate position, or do we see, like, say, the QAnon narrative being picked up uh, across the political spectrum? Does it cross the aisle, or do Republicans and conservatives really own this? So QAnon uh, has certainly, especially during the time of COVID, uh, has been gaining a lot of supporters in new groups. Um, uh, But I think, you know, the core aspect of its origin myth has been about Donald Trump being the savior of mankind. 
And this is such a very specifically pro-Trump system of belief that it targets uh, the right and religious conservatives in particular. Um, and while others will sort of stumble into this and find uh, some stuff in the word cloud that they find appealing, it is very much, uh, QAnon itself is very much a right-wing um, phenomenon. And it's very hard to, while there's a small percentage that isn't, I think that's it's very much anchored in that side of the line. This is not to say that um, progressives and the left and uh, people on the left in the United States uh, are not also promoters of disinformation or conspiracy theories uh, in different forms. But QAnon is is this like umbrella conspiracy that just has such power in how it is uh, convincing people of things and moving a dialogue so far to the right um, and finding traction and gaining sort of new echoes through Republican politicians and religious leaders in sort of the far right extrema of the United States that I think it really is very hard to say that it's not a right wing phenomenon in this aspect, but specific to QAnon. And I think, you know, belief in QAnon is sort of this, there's nothing really new in this, right? Like many groups uh, with these strange self identities try to rectify horrible things that they believe or want to do or want to allow to be done with these messianic narratives that will justify them. And you can apply that to the crusades or to Nazis or to others. But I think QAnon is such a weird thing in that it is not necessarily in how it identifies itself, um, a political ideology. Um, so the, but there's really not, so there's really nothing new in the construct, but it has become such a particularly gruesome form of normalizing violence and dehumanizing political opponents in the United States that the direction that it is moving in is extremely worrying. And it is a hardcore radical extremist ideology that is moving people toward the belief that domestic terror attacks and violence are necessary to achieve political goals. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. There seems to be some elements in history where the whole QAnon dynamic and even some of the specific claims that they make about pedophilia and children's sacrifices, drinking blood and all this stupid shit, that these kind of claims have come up before in history. In the 1980s, I think it was, you had the whole satanic scare or the satanic panic in the US where uh, there were accusations that groups of Satanists were in, in daycare centres and kindergartens and preschools across America were kidnapping children and, and sexually abusing them and so on. And then there's also the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which has obviously been disproved many times over, but there's a lot of the same claims in there. Is this like a historical cycle or, or is someone actually looking at the playbook 
and just rehashing old stories and old claims that have been uh, very successful in whipping up hysteria in the past. It, it just seems to be a little bit too coincidental that over time we see these same narratives coming back and these same claims coming back, and they have the same effect on society, that it whips up this hysteria. I mean, like, it's it's almost impossible to, to, to be against it because it's about protecting children, but there's never any proof that any children are actually even being hurt, and it seems to be more a way of targeting your political opponents rather than anything to do with Satanism or drinking blood or whatever silly stuff they come up with. Yeah, I very much agree with that. I think um, it is impossible to say that some of the people behind Q and who the hell knows what the collective that is, but it, it's impossible to say that there is not purposeful construction of core QAnon narratives that understand the history of propaganda and disinformation and conspiracy movements that understand how human psychology works, that understand how the internet works, that understand how algorithms will drive people toward uh, different types of information on different platforms. Um, And I think all of those things really are really an aspect of what makes Q so dangerous because it's not, just inorganically happening like yes people feel unrest so they're finding this narrative and it seems to speak to them in some way QAnon is purposefully constructed to make americans and now it's spreading around the world go insane and it's really really hard to deny that if you actually sit and look at it and look at the bits of the narrative and where they have come from and as you say the historical references in them that are obvious um, many of the aspects of different pieces of information come from or are very similar to past Russian disinformation efforts targeting the U.S., targeting the world, um, that these things that come have come out of Russian intelligence in the past. And so I just think there's so many aspects of it that seem to be a purposeful attempt to unravel the minds of Americans. And I don't understand why there has not been more discussion about this, more response about this. Certainly uh, the people in our intelligence community that look at these things are highly worried about this. There's no ability to do anything in how they think about it in the current administration. But this is a serious concern. And the speed with which it has gained traction in the United States, the speed with which it has become normalized as a thing that politicians and media and others reference and point to the way that Q has spun off like the Save the Children hashtag that sort of hides, like you may not want to wear a QAnon t-shirt, but Save the Children is a, a nice light version that is public facing. Um, QAnon is now uh, sort of teaching its followers to camouflage their support for Q while pushing these other narratives and, and information campaigns. There's so many aspects of this that are constructed and purposeful and advancing very quickly that I do not know why we are not taking it as more of a national security threat because that is absolutely what it is. Yeah, that might come back to who's controlling the power and whether they benefit out of the QAnon conspiracy catching on or not. But that's another another discussion altogether. Um, I wanted to get back to, you You actually mentioned China in, in one of the previous responses. And that brings up a question that another friend of the podcast and National Security College has posed for this episode. Uh, it's Chris Sapone. He's the digital editor of The Age and Sydney Morning Herald newspapers. And, and he's asking, is China really interfering in the US elections in the way that Republicans claim. Do you see much evidence of Chinese influence around the 2020 elections? 
So the the Trump camp or the, the Trump administration has really tried to consistently put out this narrative of China, big giant headline, Russia and Iran, smaller smaller headlines, um, are interfering in the U.S. elections in 2020. And if you read what those statements actually say, um, coming from an aspect of DNI uh, and coming from other intelligence agencies in the United States and coming from the FBI, what it actually says is. Russia is doing this very specific thing that looks a lot like 2020, but they're swapping out Biden for Clinton and they're pushing direct disinformation that's meant to attack and denigrate him and keep him from getting elected and suppress the vote, period. And the other ones are very nonspecific seeming because the truth is, uh, whatever Bill Barr wants to say in his TV interviews, the American attorney general, um, China is not interfering in the U.S. election in the same way that Russia is doing. China has a broad and sophisticated effort to influence the United States writ large. Um, This focuses primarily on how they can use their financial clout to infiltrate and influence, you know, academia, companies, uh, entertainment, um, you know, various industries, however you want to define it, politics directly. Um, the Chinese system of interference of influence in the United States is not the same as the Russian system of influence uh, in the United States, and what they are doing uh, in terms of quote election interference is in no way, shape, or form the same thing. I do think China is experimenting um, with some similar aspects of information operations online, um, but it is very much not um, the same system of what Russia has done in these sort of false, uh, you know, false avatar, false accounts, pushing narratives directly uh, type things. I just think it's a completely false um, comparison that's being made to try to make it seem like this Russia stuff that's helping Trump isn't so bad. And really the real enemy is China. And we all need to look at China and look over there at China, which we're going to say Joe Biden has taken a bunch of money from. So all of this is just an attempt, again, by this administration to erase the importance and the relevance of what the Kremlin is doing to attack the United States. And that's really sad that they're trying to do this. China is a significant national security threat to the United States. It's approaching it in a very different way. But the truth is, China is not Russia. It doesn't need to act as a disruptive power in the same way that the Kremlin does. And uh, they ha- you know, the- their ability to influence the U.S. system particularly through money, is so much more sophisticated that they don't need to do the same types of things that Russia does. They don't really care who wins. They believe that no matter who wins the U.S. election, they can continue to do exactly the same types of stuff that they're doing to buy silence in the United States and to build advocates um, for the things that they care about through financial influence and, and, and of course, stealing IPR and intellectual theft and, and all of these other things that we know Chinese intelligence has been very focused on in the past um, as well. So I just think they're totally different systems of, uh, of influence, one of which is directly targeting a U.S. election and one of which is not. And comparing them is, is a completely false uh, equivalency that's being made by this administration. So to continue on with the questions posed by friends of the podcast, we have one here from Liz West, who works at the National Security College Cyber Team, and she asks, we see the internet and social media in particular as being the main vector for political disinformation, but it seems that one already has to be politically motivated to attract disinformation into your social media streams. Indeed, the Russian playbook has been to target online influencers to get their messages to go viral within real person networks. 
where do the politically apathetic stand? How is all of this chaos and doubt impacting the political bystanders? Do we see a trend of the general public being actively discouraged to vote given the confusion being spread around the legitimacy of the political process? So I think that this aspect, the cynicism of everything, um, is a particularly Russian aspect to... Uh, the disinformation that we've become quite accustomed to now, the sort of deeply steeped Russian cynicism that everything is bullshit and nothing really matters and there is no politics and why does it really matter anyway, um, is uh, sort of bleeding outward from Moscow to everyone else via these disinformation campaigns, which is not to say the rest of the world doesn't have these sentiments in some aspect anyway. But I think in some of the online campaigns, we really do see this being echoed in ways that have become quite uh, they feel quite similar to us, and and I think they're being embraced a little too much. Uh, I think this. I, I think China is very good at this. Russia is maybe a little more clumsy at it, but has become better at it. Um, this idea of, uh, in propaganda terms, the way you would explain it is beating someone about the head and shoulders with your direct political narrative is rarely a very successful thing. But if you can introduce those ideas sideways, often they'll gain more credence. It's the rom-com factor, right? Like if you can convince someone of a political idea through a romantic comedy on TV, it's much more effective than if you can convince them of the political idea as a political idea. So I do think there has been a lot of effort to find ways to introduce inherently ideological and political narratives through other, quote, influencers who may see themselves as, quote, non-political but really, that's all just a lie. Like, there's this lie of this is not about politics that is exposed by many of these people who have been drawn into kind of different forms of mimetic warfare that seem to come from non-political means, but it's all inherently about politics. And the worst people are actually the ones who pretend that they don't know what they're doing. Guys like Joe Rogan in the American context, who is you know, by far the most downloaded and listened to podcast in the United States, which has inherently political messaging, even when he's talking to sports figures or entertainment people or whatever else, but he just pretends like I'm just a guy asking the questions. A huge aspect of this, if you dig into what are the narratives that these people are actually promoting, does become this dismay de facto voter suppression tool. This idea that you as an individual don't matter, your vote can't possibly matter. These When there's these conspiracies and narratives about you know, the conservative masterminds ensuring that the Supreme Court gets corrupted and the cabal of blood drinkers and Democrats who are trying to take over the universe on the other side. You know, when when there's these narratives of, of secret elite cabals in control of everything, it convinces people that they, they don't matter, their vote doesn't matter, what's the point of any of this? Um, and all of it is just silly. Uh, your vote does matter. You as an individual do matter. That's the whole point of democratic systems. Um, and I think we need to continually kind of try to poke through this uh, overwhelming volume of bullshit towards getting back to this uh, this system of belief. And I just think that the sort of dismay, promote cynicism tactics uh, are very appealing in this very strange, unmoored era that we're in. But it is the way in which we will fail if we allow this to become what we believe. Um, and we can't. We just have to push back on this constantly. 
So for the researchers out there, what what are the great known unknowns in the arts and sciences of disinformation and counter-disinformation that you would like to see addressed? Is it quantifying the effects of disinformation? Is it better understanding transmission mechanics or security questions like the prospects of deterring disinformation? So I will give a giant double-handed cheer and shout out to all of the incredibly detailed academic researchers and others who have come up with really innovative ways to try to document these campaigns, unravel these campaigns, uh, often using not very transparent information from social media companies to do so. Um, It's very hard to do this stuff. And yes, it would be nice if we had more numerical answers to things that allow us to make our cases in concrete black or white ways. But I think... Um, I come at this from much more of the 60,000 foot view, and I think others should as well. I think understanding how all the widgets fit together and then being able to say X widget clearly led to Y doing something would be really nice if we could do that more often in this very forensic way that we have come to appreciate uh, using internet uh, sort of open source information analysis techniques. But ultimately, it, it, it becomes in looking at disinformation and conspiracies kind of backward-looking navel-gazing in a lot of aspects that won't really help us. I think if you're looking at Russian disinformation, for example, understanding the Kremlin's goals, seeing what they are trying to achieve um, while they get us to fight about whether or not disinformation actually works um, is really important. Because if you look Uh, what the Kremlin wants has advanced significantly in the past five years in terms of their goals of weakening uh, Western alliances, weakening the fabric of Europe, weakening NATO, limiting the possibilities of American power in the world. All of these are things that have advanced significantly. Whether or not you believe their information campaigns are the only reason that this is happening, it's certainly an aspect of it. So I think kind of staying at this higher level view when we're saying, does this work? is so critical (laughs) and sort of keeping a bigger eye on the broader campaigns that are underway. Um, And then understanding how do we solve that problem? Because we need leadership. We need a transformation of government uh, or of governance um, uh, that will sort of help end this death spiral of cynicism where our citizens again feel that um, answers to their problems can come from innovation and governance in the ways that we haven't seen for some time. Um, it is a challenging era for democracy. Um, it certainly seems and feels as if the more uh, sort of corporate authoritarian models, this idea of real problems can be solved in a much easier way if you just have a couple of people at the center making decisions for every uh, on everything and screw this will of the people thing the people are idiots and they always decide the wrong thing we really have seen this narrative advancing uh, china certainly uses it quite uh, in a quite sophisticated way uh, we also hear it coming from silicon valley billionaires um, And I just think we need to get back to this idea that democratic governance is um, an innovative tool for addressing problems and advancing prosperity and ensuring security and all of the things that we know that democracies can do. To me, this aspect of leadership has been so absent since, uh, you know, if we're looking at sort of Crimea in 2014 as kind of a critical juncture point and when we started looking at the role of disinformation in in all of these decision-making aspects, in the last five, six years, um, what's been so absent has been 
strong leadership pointing to our values, pointing to what we stand for, pointing to why this matters so much. And to me, this is the most important aspect of, quote, deterring disinformation is actually having a set of values and principles that we stand by and don't question on an hour by hour basis. All right. So before we wrap up with the final question, I, I figure I might as well ask you, what what are your election day plans? Do you plan on celebrating or are you going to be barricaded up in your bomb shelter at home? <laughs> so my job is crisis. So I'm usually on the front lines if the war comes. But that being said, I, I really think that we Americans and we friends of America um, need to stop inflating these narratives of the inevitable collapse into violence of American society that is coming. I think you know, the threat of violence uh, in highly activated disinformation climates tends to be a really powerful tool of diversion. And it, it sort of captures attention and resources that should be going in other directions. And I very think I very much think that's what's happening in the United States right now. Um, there are a lot of potential risks and threats uh, that we need to think about and think about what to do when we have such a terrible leader who is so prone to whistling at the worst aspects of who we are as a society and uh, is willing to uh, at least seem to embrace the use of sort of street level political violence as a tool to achieve what he wants. But engaging in sort of the walking dead planning for the future of the country can become a self-fulfilling narrative. And I think we need to, to sort of circle back to the fact that we do still have institutions that work. Our constitution is fine. Um, and we just need to fight for those things until we get through this particularly stupid era of our politics and uh, and domestic mayhem. That's a pretty strong answer, I've got to say. <laughs> All right. So just to, to wrap this up, on this podcast, we often ask guests about a seminal moment that has influenced their career. Has there been any particular experiences, be that a book that you've read or a person that you've met, or even some music that you've heard, which has shaped the way that you understand the world? You know, when you said when you said you might ask about this, I spent a lot of time thinking about, it's such an interesting thing to reflect on, right? Like, it doesn't feel like I've been doing this as long as I've been doing it. And I don't really think that much about how did I get where I am? And, you know, why do I do what I do? But I, <laughs> I think that for me, sort of this key formative experience um, is uh, in 2003, sort of between when the, quote, war ended in Iraq and before the, quote, insurgency started in Iraq. So this sort of calm period in the fall of 2003 I went to Baghdad with my then boss to do this sort of research trip. And we were there for a while doing some things. And this was a completely crazy trip. And from beginning to end, the story is completely insane. I was like 24. I sort of conned my way into Iraq. But um, I think so many things about that trip were formative to how I now approach this work and why I now believe and pursue what I believe and pursue but one of it was just like, you have to be willing to go out and be on the front lines of a fight. And a lot of times that means becoming a partisan and not just being an analytical observer. And I think that can become a very addictive thing. But this trip to Baghdad in 2003 was sort of my first hit of this drug of doing stupid and crazy seeming things that um, really help advance your understanding of a situation and, and give you exposure to um, information and experiences that other people aren't getting. But there were so many things on that trip that sort of shaped the way that I view this work in the world now. 
you know, it was Baghdad 2003, but there were Russians all over the place. And at the time, I didn't really understand why, but now I do. You know, the day I got there was Rosh Hashanah. And so we ended up in Baghdad at a friend of ours house who had sort of recovered his house in the green zone in the post-war period. It was his family's old house. So we're at this big old house in the green zone and generators are buzzing all around us. And you have a couple of failed Muslims, you know, two non-practicing Catholics, a Lebanese Christian who hasn't been to church since he was five, you know, three non-practicing Jews. And the last rabbi of Baghdad, who was the one sort of presiding over this Rosh Hashanah dinner, where they had spent the whole day kind of assembling all of the things you need for the dinner that symbolize the, the new year and the hope and the rebirth of man. And, and it was this extremely powerful moment of understanding how many people had sort of come together in this strange moment in Iraq, really believing in, I know now we're not allowed to talk about Iraq as anything that ever could have been good, but really believing that this could be a different country and this could be a better country and Iraqis deserved better. And there was so much more that could have been done. Um, And so many Iraqis who had had to flee and grew up in other places came back to try to rebuild this country and how much we squandered that opportunity and everything that came after those months and how we've just sort of abandoned them in the years that have come since. And really looked at the wrong metrics and how we measure what matters to people But so many things on that trip just really formed my belief that when there's a chance to fight for democracy and freedom, you have to do it. And you have to do it in non-cartoonish, politicized ways, because what it matters for is these people on the front lines who we often forget about and forget to talk about, but it's their countries and their lives um, that we do this work for. And so this trip was very formative to me. And how I view the work that I've done. And I've been glad to get back to kind of the Russian frontier, which was the stuff I actually know about and studied in school and have a degree on and do this work uh, more directly against what I see the Kremlin doing. Yeah, there's there's no way in the world that being in Iraq in 2003 could not be a formative moment (laughs) in your life. Molly McHugh, thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. G'day, Molly. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I can't believe you're back on so soon. But, you know, when, when we were organising a time to record the previous session, I'd noted that I was trying to record as close to publishing date as possible, given that the landscape shifts so quickly in 2020. And, well, what do you know? Almost as soon as I pressed end record on the previous segment, everything changed. First, it was leaked that Hope Hicks, one of the president's aides, had tested positive for COVID-19, and she had been in close contact with the president. Soon after that, the president revealed that he had tested positive himself. And soon after that, a cascade of the president's senior staff and Republican congressmen had also tested positive. The following day, the president was admitted to hospital. And in the most recent 24 hours, it has been trickling out that the president is on some experimental treatments. Uh, The term the media is using is a cocktail of drugs. And I just saw a tweet just before we started recording this second session, that um, the president is about to be discharged from hospital and is going back to home care. Um, There's so much information flooding the system at the moment, even more than usual, that it's really hard to keep up. And and I've got to be honest, I'm struggling to even know the right question to ask here, Molly, other than WTF. What 
did, did this send the info war space into overload or is the world of lies even having trouble to keep up with the real world where even is the distinction anymore i think the worst part is that um on both sides now no matter what your political perspective is in the united states we seek a conspiracy because we believe it is probably more true than the truth we're being told by the white house And you saw this kind of proliferation this weekend of uh, information across the internet about the president's condition and when did he know and what is he being treated with and what does all that mean? And some of these are totally valid questions because obviously we as the public deserve to have transparent communication from the White House about these things um, and a straightforward response in terms of his condition and what this means and who's in charge and all of the normal national security implications you would have when your commander in chief is uh, not not particularly well with a serious illness. And we didn't get any of that. But I mean, the descent into conspiratorial thinking on social media on both sides is just bonkers. And I think it's really hard to kind of pull out of that tailspin. Uh, And it's worse, of course, when the president is, I'm fine, everything is fine here, you know, how are you? But he does have a team of 14 doctors treating him and airlift support and uh, special experimental monoclonal antibody treatments that the rest of us don't get. Hopefully that means that, that, you know, his condition is being managed and uh, he's not the one self-medicating, but I think we have a really hard time knowing that when his team of doctors is a bunch of yes men and that's very hard to gain comfort from and what do you think this is going to do to uh the the theories and the people out there that are believing that it's it's a hoax that it's a pandemic or it's a scamdemic or all of all of these other perspectives out there that say that you know it's either just a flu or it's nothing to worry about or it doesn't even exist are these people going to be able to perform the mental gymnastics to remain in support of a president who has now essentially debunked their theory that the that the the covid doesn't exist or it's just a minor cold so it's it's interesting and i think you know the the most frustrating thing about this president has always been that he doesn't need to be this way right and It was sort of, you know, at the beginning where there was this, as he called it, the Russia cloud hanging over his head at his inauguration and the concerns about um, Russian interference in the 2016 elections and what that meant and who was really talking to them and what was going on. Um, Yes, we all had questions about that. But if he had just come out like his second day in office and said, this is terrible, stupid foreign countries shouldn't meddle in American politics. Here's what we're going to do about it no one would have asked that many more questions because we all just wanted to get back to business as usual and not believe that we were on the target end of an attack by a hostile foreign power um, to influence how we think about things, right? Like everybody wanted to get back to business as normal and he totally missed that opportunity and consistently has missed that opportunity to just say one normal thing about Russia, his entire freaking presidency. And it's the same with this, where he gets sick and the normals are all like, ha ha, now he's going to have to admit COVID is real and there is no hoax and the science is what's curing him. And wouldn't you be glad to have Dr. Fauci on your team at this moment? And in fact, the exact opposite has occurred where, um, yes, he is getting the best possible treatment available to man. 
uh, literally a treatment no one else in the entire world has had uh, holistically from top to bottom with care that no one else could possibly expect with the most talented doctors in our country working at Walter Reed. And um, his answer is still, this COVID thing is no big deal. Don't live in fear. You know, I feel better than I did 20 years ago. And I probably look younger and more handsome too. And it's just like, for God's sakes, really? You can't even use this moment to tell people to wear a mask? Like, no, can't do that. And that message, unfortunately, has been both fed to him by the right-wing echo chamber and is now trickling out, uh, sort of reverberating times 25 in the right-wing echo chamber, where it's very much, and I quote directly from a U.S. senator who posted this on Twitter, Donald Trump kicked COVID's ass, um, and they're using this message to say that he's a tough guy and tough guys win and tough guys can beat COVID. And I guess the 210,000 Americans that have died and the millions of Americans that have lost a family member who are letting COVID quote dominate their lives are wimps and weaklings. And it's just unbelievable how people stay way down inside that information rabbit hole long after they should depart because it feels good to them. And is, is his behavior likely to win him any extra votes than he didn't already have? Or is this just appealing to the people that he's already won over? I mean, like to, talking, to, as you said, 210,000 people have died and likely another 20 or 30,000 are going to die before actual election day. Is, is he likely ostracizing a certain element of the vote or is this actually going to is this going to resonate and is this going to appeal to people that aren't already voting for him? So I do think um, for the hardened, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30% that would walk into the volcano with him, uh, they're going to love it and it's going to be great. And they're going to love the memes of Donald Trump wrestling with COVID. They're going to think it's the greatest thing they've ever seen. Um, But I think that, or certainly it seemed, and who knows if they have secret sauce happening in their data targeting again, but um, they were hoping to regain votes of women, particularly suburban women, um, with this kind of law and order, you should be afraid message, uh, which has now kind of totally fallen by the wayside, of course. Um, And that didn't seem to be working. I think it is particularly not working when you layer COVID on top of that, because if you're a mom or a person with a family or a person responsible for other people, or just a practical person who likes to run the carpool on time, um, you don't like what you're seeing from the White House because it's just so irresponsible. And let him do what he wants. Nobody really cares. But when it's endangering the lives of all the people that work for him, of the maids that are now sick in the White House, of the Secret Service agents who are being exposed, where there's literally no care for anyone around him, I think when you when you look at the the vote of women, he is the lowest support amongst women, which is probably just the people who will vote a straight red ticket every time, no matter what, that I think anybody's ever had going into re-election. And um, I think the other piece that they're really, I, I'm not sure that it's been captured well, it's starting to show, it, like there's been more specific polling trying to pull this data out, um, is... When you have the president of the United States sitting on TV consistently saying, it's fine, it's just the old people that die for months and months, you know who doesn't like that very much? The old people. And so demographically, it doesn't matter which race, you know, caste, whatever, um, across the board, he has lost support in the 65 plus group, um, which is normally a hardcore uh, Republican voting base. And so I think both of those things kind of indicate 
He's got really weak numbers. He's obviously 100%, uh, you know, doubling down on the harden the base, turn out the vote strategy. I don't know that that's going to be enough, but um, I think those two groups, sort of women and older, the older voters, certainly don't seem to show that there is movement back in his direction. Well, I, I know that um, speculation isn't always the best way to go, but the way things are panning out these days in the world, it's almost like it's a legitimate uh, analyti- analytical process. So if you were to speculate, um, let's say that Biden wins the election, not by an absolute landslide, but a somewhat convincing margin, what do you think? Do you think Trump's going to leave the office and never let him be seen again? Or do you think he's going to put up a fight? Uh, well, there's just so many, the range of options is so endless, right? I don't think, it's so hard to know. I mean, the bottom line is, in his core, he talks tough, but is in fact, a terrible wimp and a coward. And so do I really think that he's going to want to lead some gigantic fight? No, but do I think the people around him may take up that call via his Twitter feed? Probably. I think best case scenario, Biden wins Florida, you know, very clearly on election night, which makes it impossible for Trump to win the Electoral College. And then we can stop with all this counting the mail-in votes is going to be so long and hard conspiracy stuff that Trump will obviously try to rely on anyway. Um, I think there's a lot of priming on both sides in the information environment in the United States building up expectations of unrest, building up expectations of violence. This is obviously being echoed back to us uh, through every possible media source in the United States at this point, because our news is just such crap. And I do worry about that. I worry that I've seen this in other countries that I've worked in, um, particularly ones that are under Russian pressure, um, that when there's this expectation building up to election day of violence or unrest, you focus so much on the potential for that, that you lose sight of all the other things that are really important that need to be happening to prevent the violence and unrest from happening. And I I know the Biden team is preparing for all options and is sort of focused on these things and has a good legal strategy ready and all this other stuff. But um, this president is, uh, you know, like a grenade inside a barrel. And um, I think he... Uh, is looking forward to the opportunity to pull the pin. And I do really worry about that. I think the organization, particularly on the right, in some of the conspiracy-minded groups, but with the sort of self-declared militias, there's new apps, they sort of, you know, self-assort, they task themselves with these, uh, you know, missions to go and secure the towns and monitor the protests and, you know, turn out and wave guns around for Trump or whatever. These have been very small if you, you know, put it on a national footprint, but you don't need it to be nationwide. I think the potential for targeted, small, localized, but on TV, it will look very large and real unrest or potentially violence after the election. Um, It's there. The potential is definitely there. And it would be really nice if we had grownups in this country that wanted to tamp it down. But that might be very difficult uh, as we get toward election day. Yeah, I must admit, I I think that echoes 
exactly my thoughts as well is that the the likelihood of someone cooking off a small VBIED out the front of CNN or out the front of a, a democratic office or a few targeted attacks are, are probably the likelihood and that may spur on a few more of the crazies I, I'm I'm not really seeing the grounds for actual civil war I think no, that there's no. too much of the, the sensible centre out there that is just not going to buy into it but the amount of people and the amount of crazies if you want to put it that way that, that may take to the streets with some violence I, I think that threat is, is very real well molly thank you very much for coming back on as soon as i press stop recording on this <laughs> session i'm going to start editing it and i'm going to submit it for uh, publication straight away so it doesn't get overtaken by events again Marvelous. so thanks very much again for coming back on the national security podcast my pleasure thank you and a big thanks to molly McHugh for joining us on this episode of the national security podcast If you have any thoughts on what's going on in the US and the disinformation campaigns that are surrounding this 2020 election campaign, you can get in touch with us using Twitter. Hit us up at Apps Policy Forum or you can speak to me directly at NatSecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Feel free to drop a rating and a review on whatever platform you pod with. You can let us know what you would like to hear in coming episodes. We take all that feedback very seriously, so please let us know your thoughts. And we will be back soon with another episode from our In Discussion series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the National Security College with Professor Roy Medcalf speaking to the leaders of the Australian national security community. Don't miss that, and we'll speak to you again soon on the National Security Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.